We continue in our study of 1 John. We come to 1 John chapter 5 this evening. 1 John chapter 5. I will read the first five verses of that chapter. 1 John chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 5. Let's pay heed now to what God tells us. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you that you give your word to us, and we thank you that it is a precious commodity, that it is filled with wisdom, and that wisdom is to be desired, it is worthwhile, it is by that wisdom that you have uh, uh, created the world, but that wisdom is also available to us, and so we pray this night that you will open your word and that you will enable us by the power of your spirit to experience that wisdom, that we can live wisely in your world to your honor. For we make this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think we would have been hard-pressed over the last uh, a few weeks, not at some time or other, to think about winning something or other. Uh, if you're a sports fan, uh, surely you wondered and wanted uh, the Phillies uh, to win the World Series. If you're a soccer fan, uh, you surely wanted uh, the Union to end up winning the uh, soccer championship. Uh, if you're a follower of professional football, uh, you were hoping and hoping that the Eagles would end the season uh, only winning and that they would have kept up their winning ways. And if you happen to be one of those people who can't abide sports and you think it, it's all a bunch of foolishness, you also surely were thinking about winning because every time you turned on the television, every time you opened your mailbox, there was an ad uh, from a politician who wanted what? To win. Uh, and so we have been inundated by this notion of winning about victory. Um, and as uh, with uh, sports, uh, there can be disappointment. And as with elections, uh, there likewise can be disappointment because uh, winning doesn't keep on. And with all of this hype, uh, some of you may say, look, I didn't come to church to hear about winning. Well, I don't think I will apologize to you about talking about winning because that's exactly what John talks about in this uh, section that I read to you this evening. He talks about how uh, those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, are, are winners, they're overcomers, they are those who are, are the victors, if you will. And our passage sets out uh, uh, not a tentative idea about victory, but it sets out for us a sure way of overcoming the opposition that we find in our, our lives. And when we look at these first five verse, 
verses, we can see that they're, uh, they're set out uh, uh, for us in such a way that, that verse 1 and in some ways verse 5 have similar kinds of things to say to us. Uh, and so we can see them kind of as bookends. And so we see uh, the way in which this is all put together. And, and George, John starts off uh, both in verse 1 and in verse 5 to set forth something that, that I'm calling a confession. Uh, that is, it's a statement about what these people are supposed to and uh, are, are actually uh, believing. And so that's what he sets out. And, and the first principle that uh, John sets out here is that, uh, that those people who are victors, who are winners, are those who are born of God. Now, this notion of being born of God is uh, not something that's new to the Apostle John. <clears throat> it's something that uh, uh, has... Um, been a part of who John is. You, you probably, if you know anything at all about uh, the way in which the scriptures talk about being a born again, uh, you think about John at chapter three and John's interact, uh, Jesus' interaction with uh, Nicodemus, uh, uh, the leader and ruler of the Jews. And you may even have memorized at some time or other at John chapter three, verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So this this idea of rebirth uh, is, is common to John. And, and we, we see in that third chapter of John uh, and his interaction with Nicodemus some of the ways in which John uh, helps us as he records these things for us about Jesus and Nicodemus. And uh, uh, Jesus explains a bit and then he concludes uh, in his interactions with Nicodemus in this way in verses uh, 7 and 8 of that third chapter. He said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of God. And John picks up on that same theme here as he talks in uh, verse 1 uh, that everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ has been born of God. Uh, being born of God is something in which God takes the initiative and, and, and we, we dare not miss this point. I mean, it's something that's fundamental and it's embedded in this text, but it's in particular embedded in the way in which John talks about who believers really are, both here and in his gospel. And, and, and just as no one can cause himself to be born again, uh, born uh, uh, by his mother, neither can anybody cause himself uh, to be born spiritually and born in the spirit. And I think we have to be careful, and it's John is pointing this out to us, that faith is an evidence that we are born again. Uh, not the cause of us be, being born again. Uh, those of you who have been uh, engaged in a lot of American evangelicalism or fundamentalism, uh, you've probably heard that suggested to you as the opposite. Well, I'm arguing to us for us tonight uh, that that, it's, that is not the way in which it is. And it's interesting, back in John chapter 3, in, his, in John 3, the gospel, uh, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he talks about the mistake 
mysterious element, if you will, of this idea of being born again. And the way in which he illustrates that is he says that, that you know, you, 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 see the, you, you see evidences of the wind, but you don't see the wind. You know, you see the leaves moving, you see the dust blowing, but you don't know where the wind started and you don't know where the wind is going. Uh, that's the kind of thing, and it's sort of mysterious. If I could uh, try, to, uh, try to bring that closer to us, on Thursday morning, some of you are going to put turkey in the oven. Uh, and uh, you're going to expect that that turkey is going to cook. And when you take it out of the oven, it's going to be nice and brown and ready to eat. You know, you're going to put this slab of kind of white pink meat in the, in the oven. You're going to turn the oven on. And, you know, even if you have a door on your oven, you could sit there for all those hours and look at it, and you can't see the heat heating the turkey and turning it from that blob that you put into your oven and coming out as the picturesque kind of thing that you want to eat on, on, on Thanksgiving Day. You see, it, it is a mystery. It's something that works in there. It's like that heat. It's like the wind. And that's what John is trying to get to us here. Um, it's the same thing. It's, it's true of us uh, believing. And, uh, you know, regeneration comes to us by the power of the Spirit and uh, it refl it's reflected then in the exercise of faith on our part. Now, John kind of telegraphs this, not only states here that, that those that everyone who believes in Jesus has been born of God, but, but uh, it also bumps out in the way in which he uses the language and the grammar, if you will. Uh, the word believe is in the present tense, and the word born is in the perfect tense. And you grammarians uh, um, uh, will know that the perfect tense refers to something that's happened in the past. And the present tense talks about things that are going on now. And it just so happens that, that the past thing that happened, the action of the past, uh, is that which is born. That's the perfect, and the present is the believing. And so John, John gets this across to us. God uh, helps us to understand then something that happened in the past, namely regeneration, being born anew, and something that happens in the present now, and namely exercising faith, believing. That's, that's what he's talking about here. I just need to, to add to this as we think about this, this idea of time. Oftentimes we also think about faith as terms of something that we did back then. And there's nothing wrong with thinking about faith as something that we did back then. But it's interesting here that John is not talking about believing back then. He's talking about believing now. And belief is something that we're always doing. And I think we often have to be careful uh, that we don't confuse that we exercise faith and then somehow we, we took care of that and it's a done deal. Yes, it is a done deal, but it's a deal that has to keep on being done. Uh, we have to keep on doing it. And so I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. Now, what is it that these uh, 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 people who are victors, if you will, what is it that uh, these born-again people, what do they believe? I think here again, we have to be careful. Belief is a, is a word that's a church word. And so we, we say it a lot in church, uh, but oftentimes we say it in a non-reflective way. We don't, we don't think very much about it. We just say it. It's just there. It's an easy word for us to use. Uh, So-and-so is a believer. Uh, I'm a believer. We're all believers. 
this, uh, we believe this, we believe that, they believe that, something else, and we don't believe what they believe. But we don't think very much, we don't reflect very much upon that. And so let's just think a little bit tonight. To believe something means to judge that something is true. Uh, that whatever this is that's true, it's worthy of putting our trust in. And John uses that with both of those elements there of something that is true, but something that is worth putting our trust in. And this trust involves more than just a passing acquaintance. Uh, to believe in Jesus, we have to know who this Jesus is. In addition, we need to be ready to acknowledge what he has said about himself. Uh, Jesus is, is, doesn't only come to us as someone in whom we believe, but Jesus comes to us as someone who tells us who he is. The scriptures are filled with these, these, this about who Jesus is. He's the one who, who takes away sin. He takes away the sin of people. He takes away the sin that we commit is, is what we have to believe about him. He takes away our sins so that we should not perish. But this uh, believing and uh, acknowledging who Jesus is, uh, to, to really believe in the way in which John is talking about here, requires just a little bit more than knowing something, requires a little bit more than acknowledging that it's uh, worthy of trust. Uh, it also requires us to actually live our lives with the confident assurance that depending on Jesus will free us from, uh, from our guilt and from the punishment that we deserve. And it also requires us to believe that in Jesus we can be winners, that we can be victorious. We can be victorious over the sin that Jesus delivers us from. And for many of us, that's, that's, that's a step that we find hard to do. We can believe that Jesus took away our sins of the past, but we have difficulty believing that Jesus frees us from the sins that we deal with in the present. And I want you to keep that in mind as we walk along through this, this text. Now, now, John does, as he's done in other places, he tells us that it is Jesus uh, is the Christ. And so he, he points us, first of all, to this Jesus. And, and I've mentioned this before, as we've talked about this, as it's been a part of him. But John, in the very first chapter, wants us, reminds us, he starts off by telling us, this Jesus was someone who was real. And I want you to know he was real. And the way in which I want you to know he was real is, is because I saw him. I didn't only see him, I touched him. I heard him. You see, he wants us to know that this Jesus was a real person. And, and our understanding, our, our, our knowledge of this Jesus requires us to, to recognize and to acknowledge that, that he was a real person. And why is that very important? Because you as a real person have sinned. And you as a real person have gotten the guilt that comes with sin. And in order for your sins to be taken away, it's necessary for a real person to suffer the consequences of the sins that you have committed. So, so John wants us to first of all recognize that we have to believe that it is this real person who suffered and died in our place. But he also calls him the Christ. 
Uh, that is the Messiah, the one who was anointed. And by and large, the idea of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, comes out of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is filled with images, uh, with pictures, if you will, of trying to help us to understand who Jesus is. Uh, at this season of the year, we will be filled with those because uh, people will be telling us. Uh, we will be trying to reflect on, on, on Old Testament passages, Old Testament images that help us to understand who who Jesus was, who was uh, the incarnate Jesus. So, so that will come to us. Uh, but, but we see this Christ, and we have to recognize him. We have to see him as the one who comes as the Savior, but we also have to recognize that he is the one who comes as the king, the ruler. Uh, those are important things as we go along and look here at the idea of of, of uh, people who believe in Jesus as being um, uh, victors, as being overcomers. Now, that's what he tells us in verse uh, 1. But then uh, in uh, <clears throat> uh, verse uh, 5, he also tells us uh, that, uh, uh, that we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and he again wants us to pick up on, on, yes, I'll call it that, even though some of you may hate it or not like it or be frightened by it. It takes a little bit of theology here. And, and he wants us to know that, that uh, Jesus is the Son of God. That is, Jesus is not only, surely but not only, a real person, but he is really also the Son of the living God. That he is God incarnate. Now, in John's situation, this is extraordinarily important. That is, he's fighting against, as we said before, Serenthus and those who would be denying that. But it's not only important for John's beloved children to know this, but it's also important for us to be ready to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God incarnate. And it's going to be hard for us, and we're going to be pressed again and again through the season that's coming up upon us to skip over that. And to forget, if you will, or to not emphasize the idea that he is the incarnate son. He's God come to earth. And that's what John is saying. So John says, these, these uh, uh, people, uh, the, the ones uh, who have been born again, who have been born of God, uh, they are the ones who confess that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is uh, the son of God. These are the two elements that John wants to, uh, to put before us in such a very clear way. But in this text, he also tells us some of the characteristics of those who are victors. And one of the characteristics of those who have been uh, born of God, uh, one of those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, that believe that Jesus is the Son of God, is what? That they love God. That's what he's talking about here. That's one of the things he's putting forth. That's one of the major center parts of what he's trying to get across to us. That, that uh, um, those who have been born again are characterized by loving God. And again, this is one of those words that, that, that it's easy for us to mess up on. Because we can use love in lots of different ways. I mean, I've often said to people, I love vanilla ice cream. But if you went to my house right now and you opened my freezer up, you know what you would see in there? Mint chocolate chip. You see, when I say I love vanilla ice cream, I say I prefer vanilla ice cream. But that's not what love really means. You want to test it? Go to your spouse and say, you know, I love you. In fact, I prefer you over most others. But every once in a while, I want to try something different. 
you'll flunk that test. You see, that's not at all what love is. That's not what John thinks about his love, and that's not what the scriptures think about what is love. That's not what John is talking about here. And John describes love in terms of its exclusive character. Uh, he, he, agree, he tells us in the same way in which the Lord Jesus tells us that we're to love God with what? All of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. That's what he's telling us here. That's what he wants us to see. So we have to have this exclusive love that's centered upon God. That's one of the characteristics of those who believe. And that's something that we keep have to asking ourselves. Is one of the things that shows me that I have been born again, one of the things that shows me that the Spirit is at work in me is that I love God and I love God above all others. I love God with a kind of central exclusiveness that any rival to his love is something that's taken, it is to be denied, has to be put aside. And John goes on, he tells us, as he's told us a number of times, another characteristic of those who, who are born again and who are victors is that they love the brothers. They love other Christians. Uh, and, and we've looked at this in a number of ways, and it, we've talked about this, and John talks about it. As I mentioned last time, he repeats it, he reiterates it over and over again. And, but in John's mind, I'm judging, is that he has the very things that the Lord Jesus says. The Lord Jesus taught us that we are to love uh, the Lord our God, and the second commandment is like unto the first, and that we ought to love others. We ought to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've talked about this extensively, and I'm not going to take the time to go about uh, dealing with it any further. Uh, but John tells us that, 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 uh, that we should be characterized by loving God, and we ought to be characterized by loving others. But he goes on to help us to understand the way in which that love is fleshed out. And he tells us that we, when we love God, uh, what we also do then is to obey his commandments. Uh, we do what it is that he has told us to do. That's one of the ways in which we um, show our love for, uh, for God. And, and then he happens to tell us something. I mean, it's sort of like John is, uh, has heard some of the things that go on inside our heads. You know, it says, uh, you, you keep, you obey his commandments. That's, that's the way in which you show your love to God. And he says, and by the way, his commandments are not burdensome. And my judgment of Christian people is that we might say yes to that, but by and large, someplace inside of us is a voice that also says no to that. And so there are reasons, in my judgment, about why we can say that God's commandments are not burdensome. I mean, the most fundamental thing, in my judgment, is that, that, that God makes these commandments, and God makes us, and because God makes us in his image, and he makes these commandments to, to reflect his character, that it just seems to me it makes good sense to say they fit 
They're not burdensome. That's not the problem. Uh, he's the creator. He's the maker. It's, he's the one who gives us, if you will, uh, uh, the, the, the manual, the manufacturer's manual. He made the world. He made us. He put us both together here in this world, uh, put us all in it together, if you will, and he gave us a manual, his commandments about how we're to, uh, to do this. But I think it goes further even than that to tell us that they're not burdensome uh, because we, we can... We can we can look at the God who does this. This is a God who doesn't make mistakes. This is a God who is wise, who does these things. But this is also a God that we looked at just in the previous chapter, John has told us, that this God is love. And we talked about what love means from point of view of God. God's love is directed toward others. It's directed toward others for their benefit. And that's what it means, what part of what it means when it says God is love. And this God who is love, uh, this God who, who loves you, uh, this God who is directed toward uh, uh, benefiting you, of making things right and good for you, this is the God who has given these commandments. That's, doesn't it just make sense to say this God would not give you commandments that are burdensome. So there's, there's good reasons. We could go on for hours thinking about reasons why the commandments aren't burdensome. But you're probably sitting there thinking, as I put this sermon together, I'm thinking, but oftentimes I think the commandments are hard. I think obeying God is not easy. I think getting up and making myself an egg for breakfast is easy. But doing all the things that God tells me to do is not easy. It's not just like, uh, like getting up and making my breakfast and going about my day. I, I find them sometimes hard. And I ask myself the question, how can John say, but these are not burdensome? Why do I sometimes experience obeying as hard to do? I have to ask myself, wait, wait, wait where does this come from? And uh, I think one of the reasons why we uh, see the commandments as, as uh, uh, difficult and hard, and that is because, um, because of our sin, that, that we don't prefer to express our love for God by obeying him. We, want to pre we prefer uh, to express our love, if we would, our way, not God's way. Uh, we, we, we find doing the commandments very fundamental to what we find is uh, the root of our sin, rebellion against God, trying to replace God, trying to do the things our way, not God's way. And yet I tell you that, and you can probably answer me and say, I know how foolish that is doing things my way, uh, finding things that compromise my freedom. I, I, I really want to express my freedom. I really want to be able to do things my way. And that sounds good when you're sitting around with a group of, of uh, young people in college who are all trying to discover themselves at the same time. But, but doing things your way doesn't make sense. Let me give you an illustration. You may feel that traffic laws are really sometimes crazy and they're totally arbitrary. But brothers and sisters, if you decide to drive on the wrong side of the road when there are 18 wheelers coming on the other direction, you're in trouble. 
You see, not obeying becomes burdensome or even worse. You see, that's the way in which our sin manifests itself. But there are other ways in which these, these, these commandments can come to be burdensome. Sometimes we take the commandments of God and we use them in wrong ways. We use them in inappropriate ways. We try to twist them around. And so instead of them being expressions of our love for God, and we use them so that they can can feed our pride, for example, or they will feed our self-righteousness. You see, twisting things around, using them, using the, the, the commandments in the wrong way, using them backwards, if you will, uh, to bring glory to yourself rather than glory to God. It's like, like one day you want to make a, make a hole in a piece of leather. And so you get your all out, you see, and you're going to make a nice little hole in a piece of leather. And then you put the handle down on the leather and you put the point up here and you hit it with your hand. And you're hurting. You see, when you twist God's law, when you use it in an incorrect way, when you, when you use it in a way that doesn't fit with the way in which he has given it to us, then it, it hurts us. It is burdensome. It is bad for us. But, but John is not telling us this to make us uh, 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 just see all the different ways of being at burdensome. John is reminding us of, of the, that the law is not burdensome and he's reminding us of that so that we will obey the law and he is reminding us of this so that when we obey the law we can see something wonderful and marvelous. When we obey God's law, this God who has redeemed us, this God who has created us, this God who has shed his love upon us is pleased. You see, those of you who are married, you, you understand something about this. There is, when you do something nice for your spouse, it not only makes your spouse pleased with you, but it makes you pleased both with your spouse and with yourself. It's nice to do nice things for the ones you love. And that doesn't just attach to your husband or to your wife, it attaches to your God. When you do things for God, when you obey his commandments, God looks at you and he can see when you obey his commandments and he can see that there you are trying to express to him your love. And so John says to us, look at these commandments as evidences of the fact that you love God and don't call them burdensome because they aren't really burdensome if we use them in the right and appropriate kind of ways. Now, as we <clears throat> look at this uh, passage, uh, we not only see the the. Uh, the, the confession these people make, we not only see the things that characterize these, uh, these people who are born again, uh, these people who are victors, but we also see the consequences. And, and one of the consequences that John points out is that, uh, that, that we are overcomers. We have overcome the world. This is the main result that he's talking about here. And, and he talks about us overcoming the world. And this is a language that John has used often. And fundamentally, John uses the idea of world here as that place that's got evil in it 
And it's the place that is in opposition to, uh, to God. And he's telling us here that, that as we live in this world that is filled with opposition to God and to us, in the midst of this, we are victors, that we are able then uh, to overcome these things. And uh, as he tells us these things, uh, uh, we, have, we, we recognize, we understand what the world is. We, we know this opposition. When we reflect a little bit about it, we, we, we recognize that the opposition is, is pervasive. It's every place. Uh, some of us come through those doors back there and we sit down in here and we almost have a sense of, of relief and of release because we have experienced the pervasiveness of the world and the way in which the world brings its, its opposition to us in so many ways. You, you, it comes to us in screens. You know, you turn on your television, you turn on your computer, uh, you know, you, you turn on your tablet, you turn on your phone, and the world comes to get you. It comes to lead you astray. It comes to, to bring its opposition against you. Uh, that, that opposition comes not only with screens, but it comes with all kinds of things. And it will come to you, some of you, in a vigorous way when you get up and you go to work tomorrow. Uh, some of you uh, have the difficult time of knowing that that opposition of the world will, will meet you even in your own household. There is that opposition that, that's there. It's something that we often recognize, but my fear is, for myself and for you, is that we often don't recognize it. It is so pervasive, it is so much a part of us. So, so we understand what the world is. It is that opposition that comes against us and against the things of the God that we love, the God who has, has regenerated us, has caused us uh, to be born again. That's, that's what John is talking about. But John tells us, he says, that we have overcome this world. Uh, those who over, uh, when one overcomes, he, he vanquishes his foe. Uh, that means we are victorious over all the elements uh, uh, of the world. Now, you, you can ask yourself, well, what does a victory like this look like? H how do I see this victory? Well, you see it when you behave the way in which John is talking about. And you experience the victory when you do the things that God, John is telling you about. John says, you love God, you love the Father, and when you love the Father, you do what? You love one another. And when we love one another, when we experience the love of other Christians and we give love for other Christians, we beat back the world. We live in a world that's filled with what? Hate. <laughs> we got language for it. You know, you're guilty of what? Hate speech. You know, you're guilty of what? Hate thinking. But you see, Christians experience something altogether different. We have a wonderful victory. I can look at you and you can look at me and you can say earnestly and honestly, I love you. And you can, you can then do for me and I can do for you those things which benefit you, which, which are good for you. I, I can be directed towards you. 
You see, it is as we engage in love that we experience victory over this world, this world that is filled with hate and anger and hurt and injury. You see, we do that. But we also overcome the world when we are obedient, when we, when we keep the commandments of God. And that when you obey, you, you overwhelm the world. Uh, there's, there's nothing that people can do uh, to, to avoid not liking righteousness. Why? Because righteousness on the behalf of people, when you obey righteously in front of other people, you beat down the world because the world knows what? They're guilty, they're wrong, and they will suffer for that. They may deny it, they may argue against it, they may fight about it, they may try to hurt you when they're doing it, but you are victorious. So that when we do what it is that, that, that God tells us to do right here in the midst of his word, we, we see what it means to be victors, to be overcomers. It is in, the, in, in doing the things that, that John has set before us. Now, uh, when we, we overcome this, this uh, uh, become overcomers, John adds to us, and he tells us here in verse 4 very clearly, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now again, we have to remember that we've talked a lot about what it means to exercise faith. Exercising faith is to believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's the way in which our faith overcomes. We believe that Jesus came into this earth as the Son of God, the incarnate God himself, and he lived upon this earth, and he died upon this earth. And why did he do that? To defeat sin, the world, Satan. He did that. And be careful, we're not confused about the way in which Jesus went about doing this. Yes, think about Jesus. It almost seems like he's defeated. There he is. He's on trial. There he is. He's suffering. He's dying. But why? In what seems to be his defeat, is his victory. And it's a victory that we know. It's a victory that we experience. It's a victory that is the most amazing and wonderful things on our in our life. That while Jesus is dying upon the cross, seeming to be in the midst of absolute defeat, he frees you and me of the consequences of our sin. He bears in his own body the punishment of God so that the evil one who has led us astray from the very beginning with Adam and Eve is vanquished. He's defeated. He's lost. And we wait for three days and Jesus rises again. Victorious. He wins and as the Apostle Paul tells us, Galatians chapter 3, 2, that we are united with him, that we are crucified with Jesus Christ. Our sins are taken away. We are freed. We are justified before God. You see, it's in that victory that we have victory. 
It's in that faith that we have victory. But it doesn't just end upon the cross because Jesus Christ rises again from the grave. He ascends into heaven and he assumes all and every one of those things that belong to the Christ. I said way back when we started, remember that he is also the king, the ruler of this earth and this world. And everything in this world is under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are united to that Christ. We are overcomers together with him. So as we look at this idea of what it means to be a winner, yes, here in Philadelphia we can think a lot about what it means or what it means to win or what it means to lose and we can commiserate with ourselves about it. But the one thing we have to recognize is that we have overcome the world. I don't mean that we in some abstract notion. I mean those of us who are here tonight have experienced that victory. And that means that we go out into this world tomorrow and the world attacks us and the world will. Satan will come at us and he will try to destroy us, to deceive us. But I tell you this, brothers and sisters, you can resist, you can overcome temptation, you can put the devil to flight because you are overcomers. You are victorious. And why are you victorious? Because you have been born again and you believe in Jesus and your faith, your faith in that Jesus who reigns now in heaven and who will come back once again and all in the world who oppose you all in the world who in some way try to deceive and try to destroy you will bow down. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And when they confess that Jesus is Lord, you will know in a way that you can't even know now that your faith is the victory. Don't you long for it. Don't you long for that guarantee of your victory with faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we we thank you for the victory you have won for us and the victory that you have allowed us to experience even now. Encourage us in our walk with you that we might obey, that we might love one another, and that we might love you. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.